0: Human cannibalism is the act or practice of humans eating the flesh or internal organs of another human being. A person who practices cannibalism is called a cannibal. The expression cannibalism has been extended into zoology to mean one individual of a species consuming all or part of another individual of the same species as food, including sexual cannibalism. Thanks for tuning in. This is Odd Only Knows, and I'm your host, Bridget Watson. For several hundred years, peaking in the 16th and 17th centuries, many Europeans, including royalty, priests, and scientists routinely ingested remedies containing human bones, blood, and fat as medicine for everything from headaches to epilepsy. Many healers in other cultures, including in ancient Mesopotamia and India, believed in the usefulness of human body parts as well. Consuming human remains fit with the leading medical theories of the day. It emerged from homeopathic ideas with cures like eating ground-up skull for pains in the head or drinking blood for diseases of the blood. The whole corpse could be dried and sold as one piece, which was recommended to doctors lest they be cheated with subpar materials. There were few vocal opponents of this practice, even though cannibalism in the newly explored Americas was rivaled as a mark of savagery. The 18th century English physician Robert James Pharmacopoea Universalis cited that the flesh of a mummy resolves blood clots, coughs, menstrual problems, speeds the healing of the wounds, and were crumbled into tinctures to staunch internal bleeding. Mummies were sold as medicine in German medical catalogs at the beginning of the 20th century, and were even stolen from tombs. Whether doctors had a bona fide Egyptian mummy or a locally sourced version on hand, they made use of every piece for their practice. If the mummy supply from abroad was lacking, it was an easy fix to prepare one from scratch. One recipe promoted by German physician Johann Schroeder in his 17th-century medical tome, Pharmacopoeia Medico-Chimica, is blatant about the uses of certain bodies over others in mummy-making. Take the fresh, unspotted cadaver of a red-headed man, because in them the blood is thinner and the flesh hence more excellent, aged about twenty-four, who has been executed and died a violent death. Let the corpse lie one day and night in the sun and moon, but the weather must be good. Cut the flesh in pieces and sprinkle it with myrrh and just a little aloe then soak it in spirits of wine for several days, hang it up for six or ten hours, soak it again in spirits of wine, then let the pieces dry in dry air in a shady spot. Thus, they will be similar to smoked meat and will not stink. Many cures seem to have little to do with which body part it came from and everything to do with the mystical nature of dead bodies. Fingernails, skull, mistletoe, and peony root was believed to help cure epilepsy, though you could also try dried human heart. Or if you wanted to get fancier with your cures, you could infuse water with lily, lavender, mumsy, and three pounds of human brain. Having problems with vertigo? Take heart. There was a cure beyond Dramamine, or at least there was in the 1700s. Many authorities of the era, including preacher John Coe, recommended pulverized human heart as a cure for dizzy spells. A dram in the morning on an empty stomach was apparently all that was necessary to keep the doctor away. Certain altruistic volunteers, usually aged holy men from Arabia, sacrificed themselves by ingesting nothing but honey until they sweated honey, shat honey, bled honey until they died. Their sugar-crystallized bodies were then immersed in huge jars of honey for a century, The end result, human rock candy, mellified man, a miraculous remedy for broken bones. The relationship between the sweat of the dying and hemorrhoid treatment remains dubious. 17th century physician George Thompson swore that the terror-soaked sweat of an about-to-be-hanged or just hanged man was the ultimate Preparation H meaning apparently that said sweat would effectively scare hemorrhoids into retreating back into one's posterior in the fashion of a scared turtle retreating back into his or her shell. The skull was a common ingredient taken in powdered form to cure head ailments. Thomas Willis, a 17th century pioneer of brain science, brewed a drink for poplixy or bleeding that mingled powdered human skull and chocolate and King Charles II of England sipped the king's drops, his personal tincture containing human skull and alcohol. It was thought to probably help you forget you're depressed, at least temporarily. The toupee of moss that grew over a buried skull, called usnea, became a prize additive. It's powder believed to cure nosebleeds and possibly epilepsy. In 1847, an Englishman was advised to mix the skull of a young woman with molasses and feed it to his daughter to cure her epilepsy. He obtained the compound and administered it, but allegedly without effect. A tincture of hardened human flesh cut into small four-ounce pieces, steeped in wine and then set in a large vessel of horse dung, was the perfect recipe to treat epilepsy. But there's one catch in order for the tincture to be strong enough, it must be made from the flesh of a young man who hath died a violent death, together with the membranes, arteries, veins, nerves, and all the pith of the back. The idea was to combine the strength of a horse with the strength of a gladiator. Epileptics often josted for a position at the front of a crowd during beheadings, believing contact with the oncoming spurts of blood would cure their malady. To promote hair growth for anyone with a receding hairline, liquor of hair would help hair grow, while powdered hair, taken orally, was thought to help cure jaundice. For anyone developing cataracts in old age, human excrement could be ground into a powder, after which you would blow it in the eye. To prevent tooth decay, someone could wear a tooth taken from a corpse and wear it around his or her neck or touch the corpse's tooth to one's tooth. Even less preservable parts of the body were used. An ointment of human fat and cinnabar was said to cure patients of various ailments, including hydrophobia, now commonly known as rabies. Human fat was also used to treat the outside of the body. German doctors, for instance, prescribed bandages soaked in it for wounds rubbing fat into the skin was considered a remedy for gout. A belief that a magical candle made from human fat, called a thief's candle, could stupefy and paralyze a person lasted in the 1880s. To prepare human fat for use, 18th century French pharmacist Comte-Antoine-François de Furcroy called for cutting the fat into pieces with membranes and vessels separated. In his book, Elements of Chemistry and Natural History, in which he cites physicians using human fat in cures around Europe. After the fat was washed in water and allowed to melt, it was poured into a glazed earthen vessel to solidify. Forcroy adds helpfully that 28 ounces of human fat lends about 20 ounces of oil. Another reason human remains were considered potent was because they were thought to contain the spirit of the body from which they were taken. Spirit was considered a very real part of physiology, linking the body and the soul. In this context, blood was especially powerful. They thought that blood carried the soul and did so in the form of vaporous spirits. The freshest blood was considered the most robust. Sometimes the blood of young men was preferred, sometimes that of virginal young women. By ingesting corpse materials, one gains the strength of the person consumed. A quote from Leonardo da Vinci on the matter. We preserve our life with the death of others. In a dead thing, insensitive life remains which, when it is reunited with the stomachs of a living, regains sensitive and intellectual life. The idea wasn't new to the Renaissance, just newly popular. Romans drank the blood of slain gladiators to absorb the vitality of strong young men. 15th century philosopher Marcillo Fincino suggested drinking blood from the arm of a young person for similar reasons. People of the era viewed consumption of blood and fat as a rather simple cure. With the blood of Charles I wiped up on dish rags after his beheading, and passed on to the ill. In another application, individuals with rashes or open wounds rubbed the fat of the deceased on their skin to hasten healing. Corpses were also taken from wars and criminal executions. Violent deaths were seen to give the body particular medicinal power dissection and corpse medicine became somewhat socially intertwined with bodies dug straight from the ground, while some doctors may have drawn the line at preying on actual marked graves dug by families of the deceased rather than those of unclaimed bodies. Bones and skulls were clearly in considerable demand around this time, and not everyone had the luck to live so close to an anonymous burial ground, placing considerable faith in the curative powers of blood. A desperate Pope Innocent VII consumed the blood of three young boys while on his deathbed. Sick people also consumed menstrual blood when available. Blood was procured as fresh as possible while it was still thought to contain the vitality of the body. This requirement made it challenging to acquire. The 16th century German-Swiss physician Paracelsus believed Blood was good for drinking, and one of his followers even suggested taking blood from a living body. While that doesn't seem to have been common practice, the poor, who couldn't always afford the processed compounds sold in the apothecaries, could gain the benefits of cannibal medicine by standing by at executions, paying a small amount for a cup of the still-warm blood from the condemned. The executioner was considered a big healer in Germanic countries. He was a social leper with almost magical powers. The last known attempt to swallow blood at the scaffold was made in Germany in 1908. For those who preferred their blood cooked, a 1679 recipe from a Franciscan apothecary describes how to make it into marmalade, which became a monastery specialty of sorts. Let the blood dry into a sticky mess and then place it upon a flat, smooth table of soft wood and cut it into little slices, allowing its watery part to drip away. When it is no longer dripping, place it on a stove and stir it to a batter with a knife. When it is absolutely dry, place it immediately in a very warm bronze mortar and pound it, forcing it through a sieve of finest silk. When it has been sieved, seal it in a glass jar. Renew it in the spring of every year. The practice of corpse medicine waned over time, but it lasted in small bursts for a century after its heyday. Sometimes any substance that touched or came from a dead body was seen as potentially healing, even in the 19th century in the UK. In 1893, Collection of Folk Cures explains that coffin water is considered good for warts, and the water with which a corpse had been washed was recently given to a man in Glasgow as a remedy for fits. Even at Corpse Medicine's peak, two groups were demonized for related behaviors that were considered savage and cannibalistic. One was Catholics, whom Protestants condemned for their belief in transubstantiation. That is, that the bread and wine taken during Holy Communion were, through God's power, changed into the body and blood of Christ. The other group was Native Americans. Negative stereotypes about them were justified by the suggestion that these groups practiced cannibalism. It looks like sheer hypocrisy, said Beth A. Conklin, a cultural and medical anthropologist at the Vanderbilt University who has studied and written about cannibalism in the Americas. People of the time knew that corpse medicine was made from human remains. But through some mental transubstantiation of their own, those consumers refuse to see the cannibalistic implications of their own practices. Conklin finds a distinct difference between European corpse medicine and the New World cannibalism she has studied. The one thing that we know is that almost all non-Western cannibal practice is deeply social in the sense that the relationship between the eater and the one who is eaten matters," says Conklin. In the European process, this was largely erased and made irrelevant. Human beings were reduced to simple biological matter equivalent to any other kind of commodity medicine. The hypocrisy was not entirely missed. In Michael de Montaigne's 16th century essay on the cannibals, for instance, he writes of cannibalism in Brazil as no worse than Europe's medicinal version and compares both favorably to the savage massacres of religious wars. While the practice of medicinal cannibalism faded away in the early 1800s, the tradition is not dead. That is not to say that we have moved on from using one human body to heal another. Blood transfusions, organ transplants, and skin grafts are all examples of a modern form of medicine from the body. At their best, these practices are just as rich in poetic possibility as the mummies found in Dawn and Shakespeare, as blood and body parts are given freely from one human to another. But there is a darker incarnation. The global black market trade is body parts for transplants. There are news reports on the theft of organs of prisoners executed in China and closer to home of a body-snatching ring in New York City that stole and sold body parts from the dead to medical companies. It's a disturbing echo of the past. It's the idea that once a body is dead, you can do what you want with it. In a substantially less morbid turn, a handful of 21st century mothers and fathers prepare and consume the placenta of their newborns, continuing a practice that puts faith in the curative properties of human flesh. Although the placenta is revered in many cultures, there is scarce evidence that any customarily eat the placenta after the newborn's birth. The medical use of eating a small section of the placenta, accompanied by some honey to successfully control postpartum hemorrhage, however, has been accounted for in midwifery practices And has worked even after typical administration of herbs or pitocin, only temporarily stopping bleeding. Those who advocate placentophagy in humans believe that eating the placenta prevents postpartum depression and other pregnancy complications. Obstetrician and spokesperson for the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynecologist, Maggie Blatt, disputes the postnatal depression theory, stating there is no medical reason to eat the placenta. Animals eat their placenta to get nutrition, but when people are already well-nourished, there is no benefit, there is no reason to do it. While no scientific study has proven any benefits, a survey was conducted by American medical anthropologists at the University of South Florida and University of Nevada, Las Vegas. Among the respondents, about three-fourths claimed to have positive experiences from eating their own placenta, citing improved mood increased energy, and improved lactation. Human placenta has also been an ingredient in some traditional Chinese medicines, including using dried human placenta to treat wasting diseases, infertility, impotence, and other conditions. Most recently, the CDC published a report of a newborn infected with Group B Streptococcus, or GBS bacteria, likely after the mother ingested placenta capsules. Consequently, the CDC said that placenta capsule ingestion should be avoided and to educate mothers interested in placenta encapsulation about the potential risks. A recent publication advised that physicians should discourage placentophagy because it is potentially harmful with no documented benefit. Fun Fact British celebrity chef Hugh Fernley Whittingstall known for a series of River Cottage programs, notoriously cooked and ate a woman's placenta on one of his programs. So if you have the chance, I guess go check it out. That just kind of came at the end of my notes and uh, seemed unusual. So I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Thanks for listening in. If you want to know my resources, check out my webpage www.oddonlyknows.com. You can also follow me on Twitter and on Instagram. I'd appreciate any suggestions. And thanks so much for listening in and stopping by. Hope you have a great week. Good night.